Welcome to the Make More, Keep More show, an irreverent but never irrelevant show dedicated to all things money. Hosted by Ron Carruthers and Dominic Cummins, two guys with 50 years of combined experience in sales and finance and a lifetime of talking nonsense. All right, so let's get this show officially started. This is the Make More, Keep More show. We do this every Friday on Instagram Live, except for the Fridays we don't. I'm Ron Carruthers. If you guys don't know me, Dominic Cummins is Real Biz Advisors. We've been friends for a long time, and he's done a lot to grow sales for businesses and teach leadership. I do a lot about having people keep their money and grow it. And so every week we get on the show, insult each other, chat about money, have special guests on like Justin. So who we're going to get to in a moment here. But um, first of all, if I'm moving slow today, let me describe my night to you last night. My wife's friend is in town who's been living out north, and they decide to go to the wine bar. So at about 9 o'clock, I've got an FAA test in four hours um, written for an instrument rating. And yeah, it's a bank of about 1,100 questions that they pulled us from. So it's, it's studying. It's weather. It's aerodynamics. It's time measurements. There's a little trig thrown in there. So I'm just studying away, and they decide, the wine bar closes, so they decide to come back to my house and turn my house into Club 1370, which is my street address. So they're blasting Little John and Usher and dancing and wrestling and drinking my wine while I'm just sitting trying to study until I think they all went home around 1 o'clock in the morning. So, number one, if I'm moving slow today, that's why. Number two is, if I fail my FAA exam, I directly (laughs) hold every one of them responsible. And they will, I will, there were four of them, I'm going to divide up the registration fee and make them pay. Awesome. Anyway, Justin's been um, a colleague of mine for uh, our guest today. He's in, well, Justin, if I called you an expert in business incentives and tax credits, is that kind of a fair way to do it? Or... How would you describe yourself? And I know you have a couple different emails. So who do you who do you work for? Tell us a little yes. bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a, I am a tax specialist, strategist, incent- government incentive specialist is a good way to, to, that's to a think great of myself. Way to yeah, that's actually a really good one. Yeah, and so I we have two companies. Uh, one of our companies is more focused a little bit on helping people once they save the taxes. What can we do to maximize the growth of the savings and capture the actual savings instead of let it slip into um, just frivolous spending? But the tax incentives, the government incentive program, is called Small Business Incentive Consultants. Is the company that focuses primarily on that, and that's where we're going to help people maximize and utilize every available and applicable government incentive that applies to them and allow them to save taxes, save, save dollars that they don't have to, if they just take advantage of programs. Yeah. And so um, this is one of those things where I tell people the, I say it all the time, which is the tax rules were written for the self-employed individual or the Johnny, what's happening, man. Um, The tax rules. And one of the other things I have is like, look, there's about, 30 pages of an 80,000 page tax code that show you what taxes you have to pay. The other 80,970 pages are all the ways not to pay. 
And so in addition to that, the government actually has credits and things of that the average person doesn't know about. For, so for someone like myself, who really does, we specialize in not just filing taxes, but planning and strategizing. Justin is like my specialist that my clients go to. In fact, some of you on this podcast have either met Justin or about to meet Justin um, and his team for some special stuff that they can do for you. So, um, Justin, let's get started. What is the lowest hanging fruit for someone who does own a business? What is the one thing or the two things that as we, we come into the end of 2023, 2022, they should be thinking about? The lowest hanging fruit right now is the employer retention credit. And I'm sure they've been, I'm sure every business owner has seen some sort of ads, received some sort of text, received some sort of email, seen a billboard that was talking about the employer retention credit. And the reason being it's the most marketed credit in the history of credits, but it's the reason is it's because it's low hanging fruit and it's applicable to so many people, but because it's so marketed, I think people kind of get a little weary of it. They have, they have no idea who to trust, what business should I hire to help me do this? So there's a lot of people that are taking advantage of it, but then there's a lot of people that have no idea who to trust and who to take advantage of it with because they have so much blasted at them when it comes to it. Okay, and so why don't you walk us through how it works? Yeah, so the employer retention credit is a credit that came out with the CARES Act way back when COVID first hit and the United States government decided, let's try and stop COVID by mandating everyone to do stuff. But then because we're mandating people to do stuff, we need to come up with a solution financially for people because we're shutting down their businesses. So they came out with the PPP loan, the IDL loan, and the employee retention credit. So all three of those things came out at the exact same time. And it was just kind of like, here's a lot of money for free that we printed out of nothing. Um, that, <laughs> um, whoa, 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 don't go there. We're going to have a whole different conversation. You're going to get my Irish up. Yeah. So nonetheless, the money, they, they said, we caused you to shut down. We caused you not to, to be able to be full functioning. We're going to provide some financial help for us doing that. We won't talk about how they came up with those dollars, but they, they offered you financial help for doing that. When it first came out, the, if you chose to do the PPP loan, you were unable to claim the employee retention credit. Like you were, you had to choose between employee retention credit or PPP loan. So a lot of people chose PPP. So a lot of people just thought, I don't qualify for the employee retention credit. That changed though. So now it's, you can do both. You can do the employee retention credit and you could have taken PPP. The issue is, is your employee retention credit will be just slightly less. So you can't get the full amount available to you. It will just go down a little bit. But you can now claim both, and it's still a substantial amount of dollars. Now is what has to happen. There's a few ways to qualify, and this is where you're going to hear a lot of different things. So I'm going to come first from an accountant perspective first, where what I typically hear from accountants when it comes to employee retention credit. Accountants are numbers-based people typically. And so the one way to one of the ways to qualify for the employee retention credit is to have a decrease in revenue. So in 2020, if you had a 50% decrease in revenue when you care, compare it to the same quarter in 2019, so quarter two, for example, 2020 compared to quarter two, 2019, if you had a decrease of 50% of revenue, you automatically qualify for the credit. And so what most accountants do is they look, did you qualify? Did you have the decrease in revenue qualifier? And so in, in 2021, it's a 20% decrease, so it's not as big. They look at that. If you don't hit that number, they automatically will tell you you don't qualify for this. 
which is it, it it could be true, but it's not necessarily true. They just didn't meet that one criteria, the one automatic qualifier. So most accountants, if your accountant just told you you don't qualify for this, it's very likely that that's the only thing they looked at. So that's issue number one. Issue number yep. two is that you can qualify another way through a non-revenue qualifier. And this is a little bit more convoluted. It's much more subjective. So I'll do my very best to explain it. If you're confused, ask questions because it will help bring the, it'll, it'll bring light we're gonna out. Ignore, to we're going to ignore yeah. them and not, not answer your questions. Yeah. No, we would yeah. totally pay yeah. attention to the so, questions. So ask questions, Ron, as well. If you feel like there's confusion, ask them so that I can yeah. clarify. Because this is about as this is sub, as subjective as it gets oftentimes. And I am seeing a, a, a split in the marketplace where it feels like some people are just claiming the employer retention credit because they're saying I was negatively impacted by COVID, which could be true, but they might not actually be meeting that criteria. And then I'm seeing people on the other side, which we saw with the accountants where you don't qualify because you don't meet revenue rise. So we got to find a medium here is you don't want to just claim it because you say you were negatively impacted. You have to have meet the criteria of what negative impacted means. So, yeah. And if I can, if I can interrupt, this works a lot like, anything on your taxes where you can literally put anything on there, right? No one's checking it unless they do check it. And then you want to have some documentation. Yes. Right. So in other words, you could file and go through the physical steps. And this is where a lot of us, myself included originally, were a little bit confused on this because like, okay, well, you didn't meet the revenue test, but then there was this hidden other test that, that Justin's talking about that, more people will, will qualify for, but what he's saying is you want to make sure it's documented because if they do come ask, you'll need to show them something, not just like, whoa, whatever, right? That's yes, where you're correct. going with this. Yes, Keep going. correct. Yep, you're right on. So the other way to qualify is you. the government gave mandates. So just an example of a mandate. Mandates were typically like you could only have X amount of people in a building. So if your typical building could have 50 people in it to meet fire code, Typically, that was reduced to like 15 or even less than that at a time. Like they, they re literally restricted how many people could come into your business. That is a mandate that's going to affect your business operations. It's going to affect the flow and the efficiency of your business. So that that is a negative impact on your business, correct? Because it's affecting the flow. 100%. So that, but to, to qualify, you have to, it has to be a more than nominal negative impact and more than nominal is described as greater than 10%. And so this gets a little bit fishy, but let me give you an example of how we can justify this as a more than nominal impact on your business. So let's say you were seeing 50 people per hour in your business and people were flowing in and out, there was no issue. The mandate happens, now you have to restrict how many people come in and now you're only able to see 15 people per hour. That is a greater than 10% decrease in sure, your loss greater than 10%. yeah that's that's way, way farther than 10 percent. and so here's where we typically see why most business owners didn't meet the revenue mark they made an adjustment to their business because we can only see 15 people per hour if we only see 15 people per hour our revenue is going to drop significantly so it's what they did is they opened earlier stayed later they worked more hours to see the same amount of people so their yep. revenue stayed the same so that's why the revenue can't be just the only qualifier for this, because you could have done things in which business owners don't just sit still. They have solutions for things. So solutions where we're going to open later, stay later, have more people available, 
offer online solutions. So the revenue can't just be the only qualifier. And that's why when accountants only look at that, you're missing out on the potential dollars and availability of this is because you could have kept the same revenue. Or for example, we have a lot of dentists that we work with. And yes, they had a limited number of people coming in, but because everyone was wearing masks, oftentimes people were going, well, maybe I can do braces now because no one's going to see I have braces on. So the dentists were doing higher ticket items, seeing less people. So the revenue often went up, but they were seeing far less people because of all these mandates. So they weren't actually seeing the same amount of people and they could have done both. They could have done the high ticket item and they could have seen the same amount of people. So that's why that's the qualifier for this is you had to have a disruption that was more than nominal to your business operations to qualify if you didn't meet the revenue criteria. I can go over a few other examples, but does that make sense so far? Dominic. Yeah. I know this stuff, you know, so I've studied it. Does it make sense to you? No, it does. I, you know, it's fascinating because I think one of the, uh, my, the guy who does my taxes obviously is terrible, but, um, no, I'm kidding. That was one of those insults. <laughs> Ron does my taxes. Um, Whatever, Chubby. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it is interesting because when you, uh, when, I, when I remember when I heard that original thing, it was, I think we were actually still with our old CPA and it was one of those, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't qualify because you'd have to look for a 50%. Your account can'ts. Yes. Not a <laughs> yes, there you go. Uh, yeah. You know, so I think that's great. I mean, that's actually really interesting information um, to, and it makes perfect sense. And, you, and you're absolutely right. Like I, I love the point you made because entrepreneurs do tend to, right. Just come up with a way. And I hadn't even thought about that. Like restaurants. I mean, how many of them started? I know one of our favorite little French places here in town, um, a little restaurant, it, they, they turned on a wine club and they started doing takeout orders and they said they probably didn't see a revenue drop, but they would be a classic example of somebody who found a way. So, but were they severely and limited on how many people came in through that door? Heck yeah, they were. So that's just kind of a cool, I, I really think that's really fascinating. Before we move off this and we got a couple of questions, Justin, I'm going to get to in a second, including Gannon. If you just want to write your question and we'll read it. I do not. I keep strict control over the microphone. You are not going to get put live on my show. Um, but if you write the question, we'll answer it, man. And we're happy you're here. Um, it's just production issues. And Dominic will yell at me if I, you know, somebody's driving in their car and I let them on. Um Here's a couple points that I want to make before we get just into the how you do this or get into the first couple quick three steps they should go through. Number one is um, this goes back to kind of a life lesson, which I always taught my kids, which is don't just look at the rule, look at the exceptions to the rule. Because if you looked at the first part of the rule, revenue drop, you'd be like, oh, whatever. But what else goes beyond that? And so I always taught my kids like, no, we're not the rule. We're the exception of the rule. And there's often exceptions to the rule. It happens in taxes. It happens in the college, the late stage college business that um, I've had for years. And Dominic's actually recently started giving some help on and Ivana. But um, that's number one. Number two is you guys, everybody that owns a business that had employees in 2021, 2020 and 2021 at least needs to take a look at this because the dollars are real. I mean, one client, um, the client that you're working on of ours in New York, hundred thousand dollar refund. Yep. It was like yeah, 170, talking, I think. Yeah. 170,000. Another one's pushing closer to 400,000. This is some real dollars. Now the downside of that is 
we're going to have to go back and file the returns, refile the returns because now it gets treated as it was a write-off. Now you have to put that write-off back in. So there's going to be a little bit of differential there that some taxes are going to have to get paid on that. But who freaking cares? And for anyone who's like, well, I want to take advantage of that program. This program was put there to help you and you're going to end, you're going to end up paying for it in higher taxes down the road anyways. So you might as well take advantage on the front end. Um, Justin, someone wanted to know what website do I go to or how, how does someone get started? Obviously they can reach out to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Easiest and- way is to reach out to me. Like that's the easiest way I'll, I'll answer any questions they have. I'll see if it's feasible for them, but a good website to go to just if you want like information, like what were the laws? Like how, what was the timeline of all this? When did the PPP law like change? So I could do ERC is to go to erc.biglifefinancial.com. And there's uh, hours. Is and hours that big life or is that big life financial or big life financial? Uh, big life. Yeah. Okay. Big life. Yes. Yeah. Make sure to put the S in there, guys. It's not yeah. big life financial. Yeah. So uh, that's, you have hours and hours and hours of reading if you went there. So erc.biglifefinancial.com. Correct. All right. I got a long flight to London next week. I'm going to check it out. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you can also, there's a calculator in there where you can like, sort of estimate it's going to be a very rough estimate of how much you're going to get, but you'll have a ballpark example of where you're going to fall most likely. So if you had maximum one, number is. if you had one employee, one that you kept employed and I think you paid them at least $10,000 a quarter, what are you looking at for one employee? Yeah. Your maximum would be 26,000. Uh, things fall off along the way. Cause if you took PCP, sure. it'll, but at 26,000 is your maximum, but that's 26,000 is uh, $26,000 that you weren't going to get before. So, right. And so even if at 30%, you pay some tax on it, you're still walking with 17 or 18,000 bucks. Yep. So guys, seriously, you need to pay attention to this. There's a reason we got Justin on here. Let um, me, uh, before- let me just go over a few other, because the shutdown one, is, let me just go over a few other uh, highlight things I'm seeing in the industry on this real quick, just so I can point out a few things and just show yeah, like I how you actually got. Ask you, man. Okay. Let's just, yeah, I, let me just, I just, this one really, because I, I see so many people just claiming this without documentation and you're going to need to document it at some level. And I just want to show you if you're, if you've gone with another company, prepare some documentation based off what I'm about to say, just so you have it. In case you got, I have no idea how aggressively they're going to come audit people, but if you have it, you're going to be so much more relieved that you have this set up. So you need to document that, that you had a more than 10% nominal impact. So you can do that by what I just said with, we were seeing X amount of people before and it reduced by to this, that's a 10% impact. You can, that's a quantifiable number. Another example is oftentimes mandates said you had to sanitize or clean in specific ways. So here's just an example. Let's say I'll go to a dentist again. You have a dental, a hygienist who was a hygienist. And then after that patient leaves, they have to do a deep clean of that entire area to right. stick with the mandate. Oh, sorry, they, 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 leave, dog. <laughs> they leave becoming a hygienist and they become a sanitation person. So they stop becoming a hygienist and become a sanitation person. Let's just say it takes them two minutes to clean the entire station. They come back to hygienist. If they're doing patient two minutes times i don't know 25 typically that becomes more than 10 percent of their day that they're right. a, a sanitary person versus a hygienist you can document that you can you can provide that as evidence this caused a disruption into our business operations she could have kept her duties as a hygienist and done other business activities 
that could have helped us be more productive or see more, patients, cleaning, or, or see more yep. patients. So that's how you can okay. just to give people ideas of what you can document besides time, um, besides that we were open later or we lost this many people. Like that's just another example of how you can document this and provide clear con concrete evidence that you actually were nominally impacted. Love it. All right. So we chatted about some business stuff for those of you joining us late. This is the make more, keep more show. And, um, you can find all our back episodes at makemorekeepmoreshow.com or on your favorite podcasting service. And we're with Justin Maxwell today of SB Incentives or biglifefinancial.com, right? That's your other website. Yeah. Tell me about something. We've been talking about the ERC credit for businesses. We're going to come back to some business credits in, in, a, in a few minutes. But tell me about what's something that a, a person that doesn't have a business can take advantage because I know you and I were talking about some stuff in the student loan arena. Is there anything better than that? Or should we spend a couple of minutes on that one? Yeah, let's let me just quickly attach one thing for people that don't have businesses. And then and then we can um, talk about the student loan thing. So it'll be really quick. So yeah, one thing right I have for people that don't have businesses that have a, a tax issue specifically is find a way to start a business. Because it doesn't have to That's be like a, it doesn't have to be like a full blown business, <laughs> but sign up, find a way to start a side hustle. Because once you start a side hustle, now you have all of the business write offs that everyone else has, and you can start transferring some of your W two income and off right, offsetting that with your side hustle business. So you can reduce your taxes that way. Like I, there's really no better way to save taxes than have some sort of business operations. You sound exactly like me. You know, it's kind of like. Yeah, well, you got a big W-2, you want help lowering taxes, I can't really help you with just the W-2. And and there's things we can do like conservation easements, but those are a little, little more aggressive. But if you start a business, now all of a sudden that whole universe opens up to you of write-offs. Yes. Legitimate write-off because the government's hoping that your business blows up and you provide jobs and you pay taxes and you buy a bigger house and all those sorts of things. All right, man. Here's, what, here's, what, here's one more for you before the student loan that can be applicable right. if the person doesn't want to buy a business or start a business. So there's the ability for people if they want to, and we have access to art collectors that allow this to happen, but you can purchase art at discounts. You hold on to that art. It's not a, it's not a this year tax strategy. It's a long-term tax strategy, but you can hold on to that art for as long as you wish. We'd recommend at least two years, but when you donate it, you don't tell the IRS what you paid for it. You tell the IRS what the appraised value is and the art yep. collectors that we can purchase from are, they're going to give it to you about five to six times um, less than it's worth. So you're going to have, uh, you're going to create a five to six times more tax deduction. So for example, if I just, we'll just use a hundred thousand for easy math. If I bought a hundred thousand dollars worth of art in five years, when I donate that art, I'm going to have a 600,000 or a $500,000 tax deduction that can offset half of my income. So that's a, a, a unique way to find deductions. And it's been, it's been done for, for hundreds of years. Like people have been utilizing, not hundreds because the income tax isn't, well, we're at over a hundred years of income tax. 109 been, baby, yeah. 109. So it's been, it's been a long for a long time. People have always donated art to find ways, but you have to find art collectors that are willing to sell it to you at a discount in order to make it happen. 
right on. Okay, student loan stuff. Dominic, do you have any questions for him? No, that was that one was uh, that was an interesting one. I haven't heard that one. I usually feel like I'm pretty so, up to speed on these, but that was a new one. For so me. you know what's interesting, Dominic? I really, you know, again, the tax code is voluminous, right? Um, I first heard about this many years ago from a client of mine that was an artist, and that's her. That's one of her businesses. Mm. Is she sells? to collectors, to wealthy individuals with the idea that after they hold it for a bit, they're going to donate it and get a massive tax write-off. So and in the meantime, you just stick it on your wall and look at it. And um, yeah, and the girl who told it to me, that's freaking fantastic. So um, it's cool. all right, Justin, give us a few minutes on the student loan stuff and what's going on there, because this also is something I learned. I, I heard about it a couple weeks before you and I'll give you guys just a little bit of background. I was, my high school is valedictorian back when they had those. Um, so I graduated number one out of a class of 421 students. And the only reason I'm telling you guys that, because it was a long time ago, was because we didn't have any money for me to go to college. I was literally on the other side of the railroad tracks from the school. We were bussed over to kind of balance the numbers out. And it wasn't like in the hood but I was in definitely the lower income neighborhood from where my high school was. And it was one of those high schools where kids either got a pony or uh, a Porsche or a convertible Mustang for their 16th birthday. And my car was, you know, a 10 year old Honda that my grandfather took mercy and gave me on with brown racing stripes, uh, white with brown racing stripes. So at least if I got a date, I knew they weren't going for the car, but Anyway, so later, since I didn't have money to go to school right away, while I was going to school to be a CPA and CFP, I went and um, in the off season, read some of the rules about how to get late stage money for college, like what to do if a parent like mine just didn't have the money. And that became a business because they didn't teach it at the CFP side. They didn't teach it at the CPA side. So I really learned a lot and kind of became an expert. And even now, like if I get quoted in Forbes or Fortune, it's usually for the college side of things, not necessarily the tax or finance side of things. Fast forward to last month, and I'm in a conference with a protege, a guy that I had trained in this business of how to get families making good money, money, free money for college. And he's like, Ron, there's this whole new thing on the backside And recently, of course, in the news, we had that the Bidens kind of fake, we're going to cancel everybody's student loans, which I called BS on from day one, because it's unconstitutional. It never was going to go anywhere. It was a very, in my opinion, cynical ploy to get people to vote for them, to bump the needle. And then right after the election, it got pulled out like suckers. It, It went the same way that the OSHA mandate did to force everybody to get the vaccines. But and here's the part that Justin's going to talk about. What I'm learning, you know, 29 years after doing the front side of things is on the back side, after you graduate or after your kid graduates from college, there's a whole other way and formula to lower what you're paying on your student loans and eventually have that forgiven and unlike the one that just got shot down. This one is constitutional because it went through Congress to get put in place. So Justin and I started talking about it. He brought it up. I'm like, oh yeah, tell me more. So Justin, tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is 
pretty extraordinary. It allows the individual to control how much their debt payment is oftentimes. So typically most people, when they choose to pay back their student loans, because we have choices, and this is the key thing that I don't think people realize. There's about six choices currently on how and what method you choose to pay back your student loans. And I need to preface this. This is federal student loans. If you've refinanced or it's from a bank, you can't do this. This is only federally offered student loans. You have six choices to pay back. If you have a bank, you have one choice. You're paying back the way they, they the terms you set up with them. But the federally stu issued student loans, you have six choices. It's probably going to increase as well um, in the next couple of years because the Biden administration wants to add more. So it's going to increase. So this is going to become easier for you versus harder for you in the future. Um, <clears throat> but essentially what this allows you to do is most people, when they choose to pay back. Okay, we just lost you, Justin. Whatever you just yeah, did. Yeah, i back. You're there back. You All right, yeah. cool. Yeah, so most people, when they choose to pay back student loans, they choose to pay them back by a balance-based payback plan. So what is the balance? We'll divide it by however many years you want to pay it back, and this is that's your, whatever that is, that, uh, that's, your, that's your payment. It's really funny. On the website to go pay back, you have all these choices and one of them says recommended. The recommended one is the one that pays, makes you pay the most and pays it back the fastest. <laughs> well, of course that's the recommended one, y'all. <laughs> so, but you don't have to choose that. You have all these other options to choose and you can choose the other op. The other, the other side of the spectrum is <clears throat> income based payback and income based payback is super lenient on what your income actually is. You don't have to Boom. supply tax returns. You don't have to supply what was my actual annual income. You can supply snapshots. What was my income last month? So if you're a business owner, for example, and you don't pay yourself very often, you could show that you've made didn't make very much money that month. That's what you can submit. And they don't care. Like they they actually want you to submit your lowest month of what you're and then you submit that and you can make your payment zero. You can make your payment three hundred. You were paying fifteen hundred, you were paying two thousand a month. But because you can select to pay things back and because you can adapt the way that you choose to your amount of income you're paying, you can have your income, your monthly monthly payment to the student loan be zero or 500. Nine out of 10 people, we can make the student loan payment be severely reduced. Like we can make it 200 a month, 500 a month, zero, um, which is amazing. But it's what that allows you to do. And a lot of people are like, well, what, what happens next? is what that allows you to do is you are now in control of how the debt gets paid off. So if you just take that money and you go frivolously spend it, you've lost control of that dollar. You've just turned it from an expense into another expense. But is what you can now do is you can take this opportunity that the government has done through this program is you can take the money that was going to be spent to pay the loan off, the 1500 and you can put that into an account that's going to become an asset for you and grow over time. And so now you've taken an expense and transformed it into an asset just because the government has given you the opportunity to do that. Now is what will happen in 25 years of you doing this at no $0 payments or $300 payments, you're still going to have a loan balance in 25 years. There's a provision in the current rules that say after you're 25, if you've made your payments on time and kept on, on schedule, they will forgive the loan. And instead of just, instead of it being a loan, they're going to give it to you the balance of it, and they're going to give it to you as income. So you're going to get a 1099, and that will become income to you. So you're going to have a large tax bill that year, but you don't have to pay back the full loan. And so is what has been doing, because you instead of you 
paying that loan, but you put it into an asset, 25 years from now, that asset is going to be far greater than your loan balance. And you can take Brilliant. a portion of your asset, pay the tax, but you still have this massive asset that's been created. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars that has been created out of your monthly payment that was going to be allocated towards a debt. Now, I know some people have a moral obligation against taking the forgiveness because they feel like they need to pay back the loan. The nice thing is, is you can still take program, grow your asset, and in year 25, instead of taking the forgiveness, just pay it off, and you're still going to have an asset that's greater than what you would have had had you paid back the loan the normal way. Like you have actual extra dollars, hundreds of thousands of extra dollars that were created yeah. because you had control of the dollar today versus letting it be an expense all along the way. Yeah, really. I, I mean, it's not <clears throat> technically the definition of the word arbitrage, but it's really you're arbitraging those dollars conceptually and you're ending up with way more cash than you would have. Um, and again, it's just being smart with your money. Like Justin said, even if you're morally like, nope, I'm going to pay him every dime. By the way, if you guys don't know this and you have kids, student loan debt is $2 trillion. They stopped putting it on the debt clock. To give you some idea, Justin, where's credit card debt right now? About $1.5 trillion? Yeah, it's really high. Um, yeah, so it's, but student it's, loan, yeah, it's student loan is worse, yeah. Yeah. So, and by the way, that's actually a misleading number because that only, whenever they publish those stats, it only includes federal student loan debt. It doesn't include private right. student loan debt. It doesn't include a tuition that got put on a credit card that gets counted over in the credit card side of things. It doesn't include people who refinance their house to turn around and pay right, the, the you know, the student loan. So that, now that sits on their mortgage debt. So, um, yeah, if you guys have student loan debt or are contemplating, this now becomes, even in my other company, this becomes a planning strategy on the front end where, yeah. where previous to knowing this, we might have told them, yeah, let's refinance. We're going to, you know, your college is 60. You're only going to pay 30 because we're going to get you $30,000 in grants. And we'll get you another few thousand dollars of tax credits along the way. But Let's let's refinance this house to pay the difference. Now we're kind of like, man, we might take these plus loans because this will work for the parents also, right? On a parent's loan, correct? Yeah, yep. It's, it, this has to be a federal student loan. And here's the other thing, because this happened to so one of my son's girlfriends recently. Not like he has ten; it's just they broke up. But her dad passed away, and that debt he was the one who had taken all that student loan debt. Debt's gone. So now there becomes some real strategy. Again, unlike kind of the fake, everyone's going to get $10,000 or $20,000 that just got shot down. And, and I don't think we'll ever get resurrected unless Congress actually votes on it. And I don't see it getting past any Congress. It's too controversial. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. D, you got any the, questions, man? Oh, jo no. Justin, go ahead. We'll get to D. Yeah, questions. I was just going to say. We like, don't let him talk that much anyway. Yeah, this becomes like a, to me, it's, they're offering you a solution to just control your dollar. You that often the government usually makes you take away takes away your ability to control your dollar. This one gives you the opportunity to control it and be in the, the driver's seat. And parents oftentimes will think, "Well, I want to pay for my kid's college," but that ruins their wealth creation too, their ability to create wealth because all these dollars are funneled towards paying their kid's school. This, well, this can provide a solution that makes it best for the parents, the student 
everyone is going to become wealthier if they just choose to take advantage of these programs just because you're allocating dollars for yourself versus paying them to the debt. And you're, you're dictating what those dollars do. So I think it's a huge opportunity for everyone. And ultimately, I'll give you guys one other thing to think about. Ultimately, the federal government and society at large benefits because unless you run a business and, and that throws a lot of rules out the window or a sales job, which throws a lot of the normal salary rules out the window, the college graduates still in 2022 tend to make more money as a group than high school educated or certificated ones. So even if 25 years later, the government is forgiving a portion of your loans during that 25 years, you've likely paid more federal taxes, bought a bigger house, which means that you, you know, paid more property taxes, you pay more state income taxes, you buy a bigger car, you buy more of them, you do all sorts of things, which indirectly contributes to society and keep dollars moving. So again, something to pay attention to. And uh, you can reach out to Justin on that one. You guys have his handle there or where do they go for that one? I'm assuming they don't go to erc.biglifefinancial.com. Yeah, I think it's best to just reach out to me on that one. If they want to go to, this is the just an informational site, studentloantutor.com, studentloantutor. They can see some of the math behind it and some of the information behind it. But Brilliant. reaching out to me will be the easiest way to, to access it and get information. And by the way, I can confirm, even though Justin's wearing an orange shirt and now it's small enough that it looks like a prison jumpsuit. He is not actually in prison. He's calling from his house. It just occurred to me. I'm like, dang, dude, you look like you're in a jumpsuit. <laughs> you, you are not in jail, right? Correct. Right. No, I'm not. In, I'm not in currently prison, incarcerated. Yeah. <laughs> That's good to know. I know. I don't yeah. think they're supposed to let you have an internet connection in there, but I know when my cousin was in for eight years, didn't really seem to stop him. I'd get emails. I'd get all kinds of stuff. Like, <laughs> hey, man, I got a new iPad. What? You're not supposed to have an iPad. Come on, Ron. We can get anything in here. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Dominic, do you have any questions? Well, not on that particular topic, but if I just can So I, I think with when it comes to business tax credits, just kind of going back to that one, but we can come back to this college one because I know you're really excited yeah, we're about done this with, one. Now we're done with college. We're done with um, college. But the, uh, I always think when I, I think in the past, obviously I just assume Ron's going to find all this stuff so I don't pay that close of attention. But when I think of uh, business tax credits, I'm usually thinking like, oh, it probably wouldn't apply to me. Like if I see some email on that, like, oh, that's probably not some big deal. Like, right, because you have a smaller business. Let's say you have a smaller business. You're maybe a service-based business or you're just a small business. You got a couple of people. Maybe, you know, you employ a family member or something, that type of thing. Is it still something that that these business owners should be looking for? I mean, how how do they keep themselves up? What what I mean, are there business tax credits for the smaller the smaller entities? Yeah, there are. Um, like that employee retention credit doesn't matter how like you could have started in 2019 and only had one employee like Ron was internet and you still get that qualifies for you. Now, are you going to qualify for other things? Maybe potentially, probably not, but p potentially you still could. It's mainly going to come down to, doesn't matter how small you are. It's going to come down to how much money you're making because okay. the more money and revenue you bring in as a business, the more chances you're going to meet criteria for other credits and availability things. So I wouldn't necessarily choose size as the thing, but how much revenue do you have? I would say 
probably $500,000 of revenue, you, you should probably start having conversations with accountants like, what else is available for me? And here's the key thing, though, because most accounts are going to say there's nothing else out there. So you have to be a little bit, you have to, you can't just trust every word an accountant says as this is applicable to me. You have to have some sort of like self-action and like, what can I go research and learn about so that I can bring things to my accountant or find a new accountant that actually knows these things and ask them about things like that. Because some people get really attached to their accountant, like I really like them, but they're not really doing the best for me. It becomes like this battle between them. Mm -hmm. But you got to remember, it's your taxes. It's your tax bill, not your accountant's tax bill. They're helping you do it. So you have to take accountability for your situation. It might take learning at least the basics of like what's available to you and knowing like enough to be dangerous to have conversations with your accountant about it. But you have to take that responsibility on yourself. Is this hey, important to me or not? Do you see why I like this guy? <clears throat> he yeah. sounds like me. He does. So one of the things that I say is, first of all, we get a ton of clients just off people just and sending us their tax returns. Like, I don't know if my accountant's really doing a good job. And I'll be like, yeah, I got about five lines down and he missed, they missed this, they missed this, they missed this. Like, look, man, do you need me to keep going? And, um, and look, but what I always tell everyone is nobody, nobody cares about your money like you do. And I mean, look, we care a lot, but it's still your money. And so at the end of the day, since taxes will likely be one of your biggest expenses, unless you run a massive business where payroll is really going to be the bigger expense or, or footage, taxes, both business and personally, are going to be one of your biggest expenses over your entire life if you're even moderately successful. Even your kids, at least. Justin, you got kids? Yeah. Three. How many kids you got? I got three boys. All right. Do they still live at home? Yeah. They're all young. Right. So might have all moved out, which is great because I got to spend my money on me now. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, kids move out. Taxes don't go away. So you want to at least have a baseline idea. So A, if your accountant is way crazy aggressive, like my very first one was, which got me into taxes because he wrote up all kinds of stuff. You might even remember this guy, Dominic. You were a kid. But the guy that a bunch of our mutual friends used down in Chula Vista that went to jail, Joe, God, I can't remember his name. Yeah. Do you, does any of that ring a bell? Kind of, but not, I don't, I don't, yeah. Not yeah, so Justin, bit. we had a bunch of mutual friends and they all recommended this accountant because he saved everybody tons of money. You'd go to his office, it was down by the border, it looked like a Tijuana brothel. I mean, literally you'd walk into it, it was all these funky colors and beads and, and his assistants were dressed very inappropriately for a tax office and he'd sit on front of you in front of this swirly fish tank table thing i'd be like yeah man screw the government you can do this you can do this you can do this well the problem is there was no tax code to support it so you don't want to end up with that guy but you don't want to end up with the button down tidy whitey guy who's also a gal who's like nope can't do that can't do that you want someone that's healthily in the middle and you need to know enough to know that one from that one that's my two cents. Yeah, so what? I, so I agree. With, with that rant out of the way, <laughs> what are we got about fifteen minutes left? Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of a couple other things that that businesses might pay attention to, or real estate investors might pay attention to? Any of those sorts of things? Yeah. So I think a, a one that we see common where accountants like we'll, we'll see some pushback from accountants is the research and tax credit. 
that's not applicable to every business, but if your business is dealing in software, biology, chemistry, physics, engineering, um, computer sciences, and you're developing new processes, new products, improving your processes, your products, your systems, trying to have better outcomes for your clients, there's a fairly like high likelihood that you're going to qualify for something from that. It doesn't have to be a lot. Like we just had someone qualify for a thousand dollars in that credit. Like a thousand dollars is nothing compared to what some people can get in that credit, but it's still something they qualified for that amount. Like that's the amount they qualified for and they can access it. But what oftentimes what happens when we, when clients will go to their accountants and say, Hey, this group helped me identify that I qualify for this credit. They're accountable. And you say, Oh, you don't qualify for that. That's not real. You're going to get in trouble. It's going to cause an audit. No, no, no. You start spouting off all this stuff. It's like, you have, you didn't, you have, you have to invest. Like it's the R and D credit isn't something you just say off the top. You don't qualify. Like if you're a ice cream parlor, probably not. But if you're an engineering firm or a, a, a medical practice or a construction business or a software firm, like, if you're in that category, your accountant can't just say, no, you don't qualify. Like you have to dive into the business's behaviors in order to determine if they qualify or not. You can't just say blanket statement, you don't qualify because the behaviors of the business, what you're doing is what qualifies for that credit. And so it's not just something you can say yes or no on in an instant. So it has to be dug into. So if your accountant is saying that they're afraid that they're, they're afraid that they're going to be stolen from you, that you're going to leave them or they're just ignorant and they're losing you money because that's your money. If you qualify that credit, that's dollars that you can keep. It doesn't matter how big or small it is, whatever amount it is you qualified for, those are dollars that you can keep. And typically, and, most and explain, of the businesses we just see- Just real quickly, what is the R&D credit? Yeah, it's a credit that rewards businesses for being innovative, experimenting, developing new new things. So trying trying new things to solve problems. So for example- Let's say you're a, a construction, uh, a general contractor, and you're experimenting with a new way to hang trusses, like less nails, faster, more durability. Like you're trying to find solutions that are making your business better, but making the, the product better. Like that experimentation process you're going through, though it might feel like it's just your everyday job, it's still an experimentation process that you're going through. And you're coming up with right. solutions that some things are going to fail. Some things are going to work, but you're going to discover a way eventually through the weeds of this is the better way to hang the trust. This is the more efficient way. This is the more cost efficient way. And that's a constant process with most business owners of what can we do to improve this product or this experience with our clients? Like, for example, if there's some chiropractors in the world that do some heavy research into this type of supplement and this dosage will help this disease, we'll just say type 2 diabetes, for example, it'll help reduce it or potentially even start to reverse those effects. But they didn't just jump to that conclusion. They had to, to walk down a path of, we tried this supplement here, and it didn't work, or this dosage didn't, didn't work. work. And it, it was just constant nonstop evaluation to arrive at that conclusion that now is a treatment for their patients. Mm -hmm. They don't just jump at things. So that's what you could go choose a ton of businesses that that's, the, that's what happens. And as long as it's based in one of those sciences, physical science, biology, engineering, or computer science, there's a likelihood that they're going to qualify for a credit from the United States government. And what's the, you said the smallest was a thousand. <clears throat> what's one of the larger credits that you've seen? Like reasonable, not like the one guy at the very top end. Right. Yeah. So most of our people get between probably 20 to $30,000 over a three-year look back because we'll go back in time. And did you qualify for the credit in 2019? If you did, we can amend your taxes 
and the IRS will send you your tax dollars back because you should have claimed the R&D credit then, and they're just giving you dollars you paid unnecessarily back. So over 20 to 30,000 is pretty typical. We have another group of people that probably has like a gross revenue of two to five million. They're probably going to be in the 550,000 range over a three-year look back. Um, and then we have some people that are in the hundreds of thousands randomly, but their their gross revenues are probably above 10 million to get that big. Right on. So again, guys, if you think you might have a chance, this is where it gets into paying attention to what's out there. Um, because a $25,000 check back from the government is if you're in a business with a 50% margin, that's the equivalent of going and earning another $50,000 in sales. So don't, don't sleep on any of this. Hey, coming back to the um, employee retention credit, how do people get their money for that? Is it, do they get an offset against future payroll tax or do they, are they actually getting checks back from the government? Do they have a choice? Just give us a minute or two on that. And then I got one or two yeah. other things quickly to ask you about. So they are, they get a. So what will happen is you amend the 941. So it becomes a 941 X. It goes to the IRS. The IRS does no diligence on it. They just see that it was sent. They see the difference in the numbers and they send you a check. So you're going to get multiple checks. You're going to get a check for every quarter. You get a check for quarter two, 2020, quarter three, 2020, all the way down to end of quarter uh, three, 2021. How, and what's the turnaround that you guys are seeing right now? Two to four months is pretty typical. If it goes beyond yeah, that, we can, typically, we can typically call. That's that's better than the R&D credit recoveries. The R&D is like nine, nine to 12 months. <laughs> hey, man, it's the government. You know, I know I made a big deal when they were going to hire 87,000 IRS agents, which I don't even know that they could find 87,000 people that want to work for the IRS. <laughs> Maybe all the Twitter guys that quit uh, yesterday will go to work for the IRS. They kind of seem to like a, being very authoritarian over there, but <laughs> definitely they may not need 87,000 gun-toting IRS agents, but what they may need is a few more people to answer the phone and process the checks over there. Yes, I'm, um, that's my hope as well. I pay, I don't know if you know this, Justin, we pay a service to actually wait in line for us. And so when we need, they basically hand the phone line off to us. And even even that, it cuts our wait from three hours down to still 45 minutes. It's insane. All right, man. Tell me about cost segregation. Or yeah, segmentation. Cost segregation, I always yeah. say it wrong. Cost segregation is an extraordinary tool for a lot of people that own real estate. It doesn't always, it's not always the best option. Like if you're, let's just say you are a business owner that owns your building, it may or may not be the best option for you. It might be better to do um, uh, straight line depreciation. I can talk about the, the nuances in a little bit. But if you're a, if you own a lot of real estate or if you're a real estate professional, meaning your business is at least 750 hours a year in real estate, cost segregation can maximize your tax situation. Whoa. So it's what cost segregation does is most of the time when people depreciate their building, if it's a commercial building, they're going to, they're going to take the value of the building and then divide it by 39 years. You just divide it by 39 years, whatever that number comes out as that's how much depreciation or how much deduction you're going to be able to take on your offset, your taxes that year. If you have a residential, like single family rental, it's 27 and a half years. And that's what, whatever number that is, that's the number you get to depreciate each year. If you're not a real estate professional, that, that, that depreciation dollars can only offset passive income. So it can only offset um, the money you're getting from your rentals or your dividend income, um, things like that. 
it can't offset your W-2 income. But if you're a real estate professional, you can depreciate, you can take the depreciation and apply it to your active income as well. So it can really make 100%. a huge difference. But what cost segregation does is it goes into the building. We'll just use a commercial building. So three and a half years. Just so let me cut you off for one second. By the way, the definition, according to the IRS, of a real estate professional. So this is typical IRS where they're like, hey, you get depreciation and you get all these great write-offs unless you make enough money to actually be able to afford real estate. And then we're not going to let you take depreciation against your earned income unless you are deemed a real estate professional and the definition of real estate professional as far as the irs is concerned is 750 hours in a year it doesn't mean you get a license you can be unlicensed you but 750 hours is the current definition so about 12 to 15 hours a week and if you guys need help documenting that by the way i actually have a really good guide to how to document it so Anyway, just keep that in mind. Yeah. Excellent. Back to you, no, that's, that's very important. That is a key. That is a key consideration. And I would really advise you to ask him about the documentation because that's that's all that. And if there was an audit, that's all they asked for is can you document this? Um, yep. Let's. Uh, so, is what the cost segregation does is you take. We'll just use a commercial building. Instead of depreciating the entire building at thirty nine and a half years, which is fine for the building itself, but there's things inside the building that are gonna wear down far faster than 39 and a half years. The carpet, the cabinetry, some of the electrical, some of the stuff in the front yard, the landscaping. It doesn't wear down, it doesn't take 39 and a half years to wear down. If you didn't replace it for 39 and a half years, no one would use your building and you wouldn't be in business anymore and you'd use you'd have to, to sell it. So it's what cost segregation does is it goes in and it puts things on the proper depreciation schedule. So it's gonna put it on a five, a seven or a 15 year scale but is what that does for you is your depreciation gets sucked forward because everything, the values of those push it all forward. So instead of being able to depreciate like $2,000 a year, you can do $8,000 a year or $10,000 a year. It just like dumps it on you. And then even added a bonus on that because of Trump being in office, he added an extra benefit to cost segregation. He gives you double that. So it's called bonus depreciation where you get a hundred percent match. So whatever your depreciation is in, in year one, you get 100% match. Next year, it's going to drop to 80%, and eventually it will tell off. But like it just because Trump's a real estate person, so he put a provision of tax code that benefited real estate professionals at an extraordinary level. So you basically you get double the depreciation for no for no reason. Like on, it's no reason, but now you can yeah, take you all that depreciation reason and apply it to your active bad. income <laughs> if you're a real estate professional. So it can just like eliminate so much taxes if you're a real estate professional. And then if you're not a real estate professional, you have to just do the math to determine, does it make sense for me to do this with how much passive income I have? Yeah, but so hold on. Let me give you a strategy that we did for one of our dentist clients who um, owns the building that his practice is in. What we did is the practice rents from the building, the building is going through cost segregation. So what we did is had the building, that LLC raised the rent to the business so now he's writing a bigger check over to his other company like that it. now gets zeroed out because of the bonus depreciation. Right. And that's fabulous. You know, we are officially sticking it to the man, but in the most legal documented way, 
Yeah. yeah and so, so this I'm, is why you need people on your team to do that. Because a lot of accountants will just say, oh, there's nothing we can do. And they won't do anything. Right. They won't have and a solution like, well, for you. you know, you're not a real estate professional. And he's not. He's got his, he just bought another practice. He's got his fingers in people's mouths, you know, like 14 hours a day. But he turns around and now we've got, so I think we're going to get another 18,000 a year. So it's 18,000 that now we can move from the dental practice over to the building. And then the depreciation offsets it. So now we just ripped 18,000 tax free from the business for, eh, it cost them a couple few thousand dollars to yeah. get the report and all the, the stuff. So you remember what I said a few minutes ago about the exceptions to the rule. The rule is, well, you're not a real estate professional, so it's just going to sit in the business. But then you th we thought about it for two minutes. We're like, no, all we do is this. He's like, I like you guys. Justin, anything else they should know about that? Or are there any other like major tax credits? Because we're coming up to the top of the hour. Dominic starts drinking at 9 a.m. every Friday sure. morning, yep. and he's going to be cranky. Yep. If he doesn't get a Bloody Mary at 9.01 a.m., isn't that right, Dominic? Uh, no, I don't like to water it down with the tomato juice. It's just straight tequila. <laughs> hey, man, Nancy, you and Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So years ago when she was Speaker of the House the first time, someone, I was in a mastermind group that someone had gotten a hold of her bar tab, which she would load the, the military jet up with every year because because she as speaker of the house she would get flown back and forth you know when she would go home to san francisco on the weekends and look guys i worked in the restaurant business back in the 80s and early 90s you know high-end restaurant business and back in the three martini lunches and guys coming in having two martinis before dinner and a couple bottles of wine even i was impressed at the amount of alcohol they they were loading on that plane every week it was eleven twelve thousand dollars for like five of them and it wasn't high-end stuff it was a lot of it so um anyway justin anything else they should know about um i think there, there's a there's a lot but i think there's a, there's not a lot but there's other things out there that we can talk about but it would, we're going to go over our time so i would just say just take this information and just know that, hey, I can do a little bit of research. I can learn a little bit of things and I can go have conversations with my accountants about different strategies. If it works, it works. If I notice my accountant keeps saying no to everything, then maybe I should get a new accountant. Yeah, but know that, that there's, there's so many different things out there from like we talked about the art one, but that's just like a simple one. But there's all that. There's all of these different things that are available. Just know that 80,000 pages contains a lot of rules. And a lot of those rules you just have to learn about. And if you just know the basics of them, you don't have to be the expert on how to execute it. Just don't have a conversation about it. You go ask your accountant, can we get this done and implement it? Well, and it almost oh, sounds like if you've had your accountant say no a few times, it might be worth reaching out to you. Like, because it, it sounds like based on the, what I'm hearing from the two of you, it's pretty common for the accountant to go, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> only to find no out idea. that it actually would have. And if you're looking at, you know, four to months to a year to get that money back, like, why not just reach out? It, I don't know yeah. if that's your business model. I'm happy to, we have lots of other stuff. If people want to chat and just, I can, I can let them know, like, this is available to you. But I also will like go through, like, here's all the stuff that I would say in the future. Like if you reach these marks, a conversation about this, this, and this, and like, know that you're not here yet, but when you get here, like we can start implementing this type of stuff. So I'm happy to have conversations with people, even if it's not, they're not there yet. Awesome. 
Justin, how do they find you? Yeah, so the easiest way is to is to probably go to biglifefinancial.com slash TRP. That will go right to my calendar. And you can hop on, just do a 15-minute call with me, or just DM me here, and I'll, I'll respond that way. Those are probably the two ways. Excellent. Um, hello, Mr. West. Just commented, yeah, it's hard finding a great accountant. I'm going to drop a uh, look for my feed, Mr. West, and um, I'll drop a, a video. It's been a while since I talk about the top like six or seven things to look for in a good accountant. So I'll give you some tips for how to interview them and what to look for and things like that. But yeah, a great, a good, you still need to know some of this stuff, but a good accountant is going to save you a lot of money and partner with you to really put those dollars back in your pocket. A so-so accountant is going to cost you a lot of money over the years. And again, you still need to know some of this so you could know enough to know the good one from the bad one. All right, guys, Dominic, you got any parting words? Nope, that's it, man. Well, I mean, it always comes back to things we've talked about since season one is is educate yourself because nobody likes your money as much as you do. And and then also surround yourself with a team. I mean, I don't care how big your business is. You got to have some people around you because there's no way you can keep up all, all this stuff on your own. Um, and that's literally one of the rules of if it, any of you guys have read the, uh, the Millionaire Next Door is, you know, what are the seven things self-made millionaires have in common? And if any of you guys haven't read that, it's a great book. You can literally read the first three chapters and the rest of the book just repeats what's in the first three chapters. But um, having a good team of advisors around you will make you and save you so much money. So, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dominic, we're off next week because uh, I'm in London. It's the holiday. People are going to be fighting each other for flat screens at Walmart. Yep. I'll be watching the videos on Twitter to see it. Maybe and, not on Twitter. Uh, Maybe not on Twitter. Right. You might not be on Twitter yeah, by next Friday. Twitter, oh, be those guys, all those guys that quit were working like four hours a day anyways. I'm sorry, four hours a week. Um, they were just busy banning everybody. And I'm still mad that they banned me for saying something bad about, I mean, I got like a 12-hour suspension for saying something bad about CNN. CNN sucks. Hate those guys. Hated them for a long time. They scared my mom, and I'm still mad about it. But anyway, guys, we'll be back after the holiday. So on that Friday, I mean, Friday the 3rd, I think, or the 2nd, we'll see you guys then. Justin, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Awesome. Take care, Justin. Have a great day, guys.